if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If there was a prosecuting attorney and they were marshalling evidence, trying to convince a jury that you are indeed a faithful follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convince the jury that you are a believer beyond a reasonable doubt? I want you to think through that question with me this morning as we study Acts chapter 24. Turn there with me. We are working our way through Acts 24, getting to the end of this wonderful New Testament book. And I want to ask you this question this morning. Are you guilty? Are you guilty? We're going to be in Acts 24, verse 1. I'd like to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word, truth with no mixture of error. Good to see everybody this morning. Everybody good? You're singing good. You're singing like you believe Jesus really is alive. It's good stuff. Grateful for our worship ministry. Acts chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down. That means he came down from Jerusalem uh, toward Caesarea there on the coast with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these, uh, all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him, for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disrupting with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Let's pray together this morning. Father, this is the day that you have made, and we rejoice and we're glad in it. And this is the Lord's day. This is the day that your people gather together, celebrating the reality that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus gives us victory over sin in the grave. And it is a great privilege to gather as a faith family 
and to sing praises to you. And now, Lord, to open your word and to, to study, to learn, to dig, to read, to consider, to meditate, to respond. Lord, what a privilege we have to study your word together today. And I pray that you would accompany the preaching of your word with the power of your spirit. Holy Spirit of God, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the truths of Scripture and that we'd be moved by those truths and that we would respond to those truths so that, Lord, we would be determined to live more fully for your glory. Lord, may your fame spread through the ministry of Longview Point. May your renown spread through the ministry of Longview Point. May your glory, Lord, be exalted in these moments. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We've been following Paul on his missionary journeys. And at the end of his third missionary journey, as you remember, Paul journeyed back to Jerusalem. He wanted to meet with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He was taking a, a gift, an offering from the churches in Macedonia to help the Christians who were suffering in Judea. He shows up in Jerusalem, and just like God had revealed to him, Paul was arrested. He was beaten. He was uh, caught up in a mob of, of Jews who were stirred up by the religious leaders that wanted to kill Paul because of his preaching of Jesus Christ. They believed that his preaching of Jesus would undermine their, their culture and their customs related to Judaism, and so they wanted to kill Paul. They wanted him off the scene, and as the mob gathers and the mob grabs Paul and the mob is about to tear Paul limb from limb, the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem who had the task of keeping peace and order in Jerusalem heard there was a mob. They show up. They don't know what's going on, but they rescue Paul from the mob. And then there's this um, interesting interaction between Paul and uh, the leader of the Roman soldiers and the Roman uh, tribune in that area. And there's a plot made against Paul by some Jewish assassins. They uh, commit to not eat until Paul is dead. And so the Romans hear of this plot and they know that Paul's life is in danger. They don't know exactly what's going on with him, but they know that he's a Roman citizen and don't want him to fall prey to assassins. And so uh, the tribune there in Jerusalem uh, sends him over to Caesarea, about 60 miles away on the coast of the Mediterranean, where he thought he would be safer. And he sends him to the governor, the Roman-appointed governor of that area, Felix. And it's Felix's job now to figure out what's going on with this man named Paul. What is he guilty of? Is he guilty of anything? What should I do? How can I appease the Jews and still keep order in this Roman province? And so Felix is caught in a difficult situation. And we see here at the beginning of the 24th chapter that the high priest Ananias, who wanted Paul dead, he was a wicked man, we talked about that last week, and a spokesman, something like a lawyer, Tertullus, they come with some Jews to make their case against Paul before Felix. They want Felix to deliver the death penalty. So we see as they make their case uh, against Paul, there are three charges leveled at Paul. Charge number one, found in verse 5, hey, this man, Felix, Paul, he stirs up riots. He, he works the crowd into a frenzy. Of course, we know that's not true. They were the ones rioting, not Paul. Second charge, he leads a group of heretics. They call Christianity here a sect of the Nazarenes, relating it to Jesus the Nazarene. And he's leading a group of heretics who are against uh, our religious traditions. The third charge was this. He tried to profane the temple in verse 6. He tried to bring Gentiles into the temple. And again, we know 
That wasn't true. That was a false charge leveled against Paul. But that is the case that is made against him, the charges that are made against him. And so Paul has the opportunity to answer those charges in verse 10. And he answers those charges very directly. And he's basically saying to Felix the governor, Hey, listen, all these things they're saying are not true. They're not true. I wasn't stirring up mobs. I wasn't trying to profane the temple. But, look what he says there in verse 14. But, this I confess. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, there are a lot of things being leveled against me that aren't true. But let me tell you some things about me that are true. And Paul begins to share the evidence of his Christian faith. And it is compelling and it is courageous. And so, as Paul lays out his case of things he is guilty of, I want us to look at those things, and I want us to take those things and think about our own lives. Based upon what Paul says about his own life in this passage, I want us to ask some questions about our lives to determine, hey, are we guilty? Is there evidence, real evidence, compelling evidence, irrefutable evidence, that we are faithful followers of Christ. So let me just walk you through four questions this morning that come from Paul's words before Felix and these Jewish accusers. Number one, are you guilty of following Jesus? Are you guilty of following Jesus? It says there in verse 10, Paul replying, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, but this I confess to you. Here's what I am guilty of. He says that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. So what's Paul saying here? Paul is referring to Christianity as the way. Now the first time we see this designation for Christianity is found in Acts chapter 9, and it seems to be a favorite designation of Christians. They referred to their their Christianity as being part of or members of the way. And we know here that Paul's talking about Christianity, because look what it says down in verse 24. A little bit further in this passage, it says... I'm sorry, verse 22. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. So there's there's no misunderstanding here. When Paul says, I am a follower of the way. He's speaking of faith in Jesus Christ. And Felix understood that because he had heard something about the way. And so Paul here is referring to Christianity as the way. Now this term is interesting, the way. I think it's pretty cool. I don't know why we got away from it. But this term emphasizing or or, uh, saying that, that we are followers of the way emphasizes the exclusivity of Christ. Notice what it says there in verse 14. Paul says, this I confess to you that according to the way, according to the way. Now notice the word the there. That's the definite article, and it's there in the Greek language. It's, it's ha-hodos. That's the, the Greek term, ha-hodos, the way. If the, 
If the definite article were not there, this phrase could be translated in verse 14. This I confess to you that according to a way, I worship the God of our fathers. But it's not a way. The definite article is there. It's the way. Now, that's pretty important, isn't it? Jesus Christ, listen to me, is not a way to God. Jesus Christ is the way to God, the only way to God. And here's how you uh, know that, or, 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 or it, uh, the support of that is found in the words of Jesus Christ himself. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Listen, no one comes to the Father except through me. So according to Jesus Christ, he is the only way to have a relationship with God. He's the only way to be saved. This this phrase, the way, speaks of the exclusivity of Christ. Now, a lot of people like to say, hey, listen, I'm not that into Christianity. I just like the teachings of Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Christianity is your only hope. If you want to say, I like the teachings of Jesus, listen to what Jesus actually said. He said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Paul says, I'm a part of the way, he's emphasizing the exclusivity of Christ. Secondly, this term emphasizes following Jesus. He says there in verse 14, I confess this to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Isn't it interesting that Paul mentions that the Jews that are gathered to accuse him call Christianity a sect, a sect of the Nazarenes. And they use that term sect to try to, try to marginalize Christianity, which was exploding in this day and time. Now you say, what's a sect? Well, let me give you the definition of a sect, a group of people with somewhat different religious beliefs, typically regarded as heretical from those of a larger group to which they belong. And so the Jews were trying to minimize followers of the way by saying, this is just a sect. These are a bunch of uh, heretics who have kind of gone off the reservation. They, they, they're, they're not teaching things that are accurate and true, and they were trying to marginalize Christians. I was in a sociology class when I was getting my bachelor degree, and, and this professor was talking about the differences between denominations and, and, and sects. And, and he kept using that word sect. And, and his, defin, his, um, his example, every time he used the word sect, was Baptist. Those Baptists, they're a sect. And he kept saying it. And, and I finally just said, uh, sir, according to your definition, Baptists are not a sect. They're a group of followers of Christ that practice their religion, their, their faith according to the dictates of the scriptures and the lordship of Christ. That's not a sect according to your definition. And, and he, he said, okay, whatever. And, uh, and, but I remember he used that term to try to make Baptists look silly. And, and they're using this term to try to make Christians look silly. It's just a, a sect of the Nazarenes. They're a group of heretics. They, they're, they're not the real deal. And look what he says here. You call us a sect, but you need to understand it is according to the way that I worship. What you minimize as a sect or a religious group is really a, a thriving relationship with the one true God. You're calling this kind of religious practice. No, I'm worshiping God through Jesus Christ. I have a relationship with God. I am on the way. I am actively following Jesus. And so, are you guilty of following Jesus? Now listen, I didn't ask you if you were a member of a church. I didn't ask you if you've ever gone through confirmation. 
didn't ask you if you are Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Episcopal. I didn't ask you any of that. My question is, are you guilty of following Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus who is the only way to be saved? Are you on the way? I mean, are you worshiping him according to Jesus? Are, are you following him? Are you, are you on the right path? Or are you just going through the religious motions? Or let me ask it like this. Can people tell by your life that you are a follower of Jesus? Is there evidence to convict you of that reality? Are you guilty of following Jesus? Paul, I love it what he says here. Hey, I'm not guilty of all those charges they leveled against me, but let me tell you what I am guilty of. I'm a follower of the way. I follow Jesus Christ. Don't you like that? Which leads to the second question. Not only do you need to ask yourself the question, am I guilty of following Jesus? Here's the second question. Are you guilty of believing the word of God? Are you guilty of believing the word of God? Look what Paul says as he again shares the things he is guilty of. This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. And look what he says next. Believing everything, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Paul's saying, as a foundation for my faith in Jesus Christ, we have the scriptures. We have the Bible. And I stand before you without reservation today, Felix, and Jewish religious leaders to say that I believe God's word. I believe not just parts of God's word. I believe everything written in the law and the prophets. So let me ask you a question. Are you guilty of believing the word of God? I like what he says there in verse 14. He said, I believe everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He's speaking here of the Old Testament, which was the scripture they had at that time as the New Testament was in process of being given by God through human instruments to the church. He's saying it is according to these writings, these Old Testament scriptures, that I worship the God of our fathers. Now listen to me carefully. Paul, and he wanted the hearers to understand this, Paul was not a former Jew. He's not saying, hey, I used to be a Jew, I'm not a Jew anymore. Paul was a fulfilled Jew. He wasn't a former Jew. He was a fulfilled Jew. See, Paul was living in the grace and forgiveness that the entire Old Testament law pointed to. Paul was, in effect, saying right here in this trial, I haven't left Judaism. I'm enjoying, through Christ, the fulfilled promises of Judaism. I'm living in the middle of the promises that the entire Old Testament foreshadowed and pointed to. For example, the Old Testament spoke of a coming Messiah, and and Paul had embraced Jesus as the Messiah. The Old Testament spoke of an ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Paul had appropriated that sacrifice for his sins when he embraced the cross. The Old Testament spoke of complete and full forgiveness. Paul was enjoying that forgiveness as he was a follower of Christ, and the blood of Jesus had washed away his sins. The Old Testament spoke of inner transformation where the law is written on your heart. Paul was being transformed by the Spirit of God at this moment. And so Paul is not saying, hey, I'm just no longer a Jew. He's saying, I'm a fulfilled Jew. All the promises that Judaism has pointed to are being fulfilled in Christ. And I'm living right in the middle of those promises. In other words, 
Paul believed God's word completely and understood that all of God's word points to Jesus. The Old Testament, the the law, the prophets, they all point to the way. They all point to the one that I'm following. They all point to Jesus. They all point to him as Messiah. They all point to his ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so, yes, I'm guilty of believing God's word. And as as I've built my, my life on God's word, it has pointed me to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know, one of the great proofs of people that are really followers of Christ is their allegiance to and belief in the Scriptures. I cannot hear someone say to me, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't really believe the Bible's God's Word. What? Hey, hey, give me Jesus. Don't give me all that doctrine stuff. Well, who's Jesus? Well, he's the Son of God. You know where that came from? The Bible. Right? You can't play this game that, hey, I just want to have this kind of relationship with Jesus, but I don't really want to believe the Bible. No, we know who Jesus is because of the Bible. And God has breathed through human instruments so that what we have in the pages of our Bible is the very word of God to us. Listen, it is truth with no mixture of error because when God speaks, God doesn't make mistakes. There's this movement in modern-day Christianity where people feel like they have to apologize for the Bible. No, it is the word of God. In it we find how we can be saved and who our Savior is and what it means to follow Him and what He does for us. We believe the Word of God and we believe as born-again Christians that it all points to Jesus Christ. So if you come to me and say, hey, I'm a Christian, I don't believe the Bible, I would say you need to evaluate your Christianity. You may be religious, you may be going through the motions, But how in the world can you grow in faith and love and surrender if you have walked away from the authority of the Word of God? This ain't going to happen. And so, the question is, are you guilty of believing the Word of God? Is there evidence that the Bible plays, listen to this, a major role in your life? Is there evidence that the Bible plays a major role in your life. If you're on trial and the prosecuting attorney says, time to talk about this person and their Bible. What kind of evidence would they bring? Do you read it? Do you treasure it? Do you learn it? Do you respond to it? Do you build your life upon it? Are you guilty of believing the Word of God. I read a story uh, this weekend about a young girl in Wales who grew up illiterate about over 200 years ago. But her family took her to church and she became a believer in Jesus Christ. She heard the gospel and she saw how the pastor of her little church in Wales would would share uh, the Word of God and, and teach and preach from the Word of God. And she wanted to read the Bible, but her family was so poor and Bibles were in such... Uh, um, such demand in that time that her family did not have a Bible. They couldn't afford to have a 
Bible. Well, one day she was at a church and a farmer's wife who had some means uh, heard that this little girl loved God's word and she told the little girl, listen, I have a copy of God's word at my home. Once you learn to read, then you can come to my house anytime you want and read the Bible. And so this little girl uh, began to study and a school was opened shortly thereafter for poor kids in that area. And this little girl began to go to school because she wanted to learn to read, listen, so she could read the Bible. After a couple of years, she learned to read and she got in touch with that farmer's wife and she said, listen, I I can read now. Can I come and read the Bible? So every Saturday, this girl would walk several miles to this farmer's wife's house and she would go into the house and she would sit over that Bible and she would learn it. She would even memorize whole chapters and she would study it and, and, and digest it and be saturated with it and go back and tell her family about what she had learned. And she began to save money until she could have a Bible of her own and she had a chance to go to the city and she had collected the money fervently to to buy a Bible and she went to the place where Bibles were sold and the the keeper of the shop said we just sold our last Bible I don't have one and the girl broke down in tears because she had the the money and she wanted her own Bible so she could read God's word and and she was so broken over this 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 storekeeper said hey listen listen I have I have my own Bible and he went to the back and brought out his own Bible and gave it to her because she wanted the word of God so desperately. As a matter of fact, this young girl's name was attached to a special offering that went to produce Bibles in that area because she was known as having such fervency for the word of God. So here's the question, what about you? What about you? If you have the capability of literacy, if you have a Bible and you probably have many or access to many, And if you don't, we can give you one. I'm not saying that flippantly. We have Bibles here. Come see me after the service, and we will give you a Bible. Listen to me. We have access to God's Word. Do you believe it? Do you read it? Are you saturated with it? Are you guilty of believing the Bible? Is there evidence that the Bible plays a major role in your life? There's a third question I want to ask you. Are you guilty of living with hope? Are you guilty of living with hope? Look what Paul says in verse 14. According to the way, which they call a, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything, I love that, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul's saying, I'm not guilty of stirring up riots. I'm not guilty of profaning the temple. But here's what I am guilty of. I am guilty of living with hope. If you want to look at somebody who has hope in their life, look at me. I am living with hope. And listen to me. Followers of Christ should enjoy, should live out unshakable hope. Now here's the question. When we are surrounded by such hopelessness, how can we cling to and embrace and enjoy hope? Well, Paul says it there. He says, I'm having a hope in God, verse 15, which these men themselves, except talking of some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees that were there, that there will be a resurrection. Paul's hope was based upon resurrection. And our hope is based upon resurrection. And Paul reminds us here 
that there will be a resurrection for all people. He says there in that verse, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, Paul believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And Paul believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, as do I. And because of that resurrection of Jesus Christ, he knew that the future reality of resurrection was settled. Because Jesus Christ was risen, then God would be able to raise everybody from the dead on that day. And everyone would be raised. Some, Paul says here, will be resurrected to eternal life in heaven. He says there, a resurrection of the just. That doesn't mean people that were, that were good or earned their salvation because no one can earn their salvation. He's speaking of those who have been made just by the grace of God, who have accepted the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They've been declared just by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And these just folks, these folks who have been saved, who have been born again, will be resurrected. Then he says, some will be resurrected to eternal judgment in hell. There will be a resurrection, he says, of the just and the unjust. Those who have not been declared righteous, those who have not been redeemed, those who have not been born again, those who have not been saved. They'll be resurrected too. Did you know that? Revelation 20 and 21 speak clearly of this future resurrection. So let me just explain this to you very quickly. If someone dies right now in this life, their soul goes immediately to one of two places. It goes to heaven to be with Jesus or it is separated from God in that awful place called hell. Their body goes in the ground. If I were to die right now, you'd bury my body. My soul would be in heaven with Jesus. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? But on that final day, on that great getting up morning, as the old gospel song says, bodies will be raised. Now at that moment, those bodies will be reunited with their souls, some coming from hell, some coming from heaven. And our final destiny will be sealed, or it already, it's already sealed at that moment, but it will be realized as those who are just, those who are saved, will get brand new glorified bodies, their soul and bodies reunited, and then we get to go to the new heavens and the new earth and enjoy eternity in brand new, uh, incorruptible bodies in the presence of Jesus forever and ever. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's the resurrection of the just. But those that do not know Jesus on that final day, their bodies will be raised. Their souls and bodies will be reunited. They will stand before the great white throne of judgment. And because their names are not found written in the book of life, they will be judged according to their deeds. The Bible says books will be opened with all of their sins and they will be judged. And the Bible says they will be cast into the eternal lake of fire where they will exist forever in conscious torment, separated from God, and it will never end. So Paul here believes in a resurrection of the just and the unjust. And if you have been redeemed, if you have been saved, you can look forward to resurrection day. 
because of the grace of God, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, because of his glorious bodily resurrection, because I've embraced him as my Lord and Savior, I do not, I do not dread that day. I will not stand before the great white throne of judgment. My sins have been washed away. When my body is raised and my soul and new body are reunited, I will be ushered into the presence of God himself and I will be there forever. When I Listen, when I wake up in the land of glory with the saints, I will, I will tell my story. There will be one name that I proclaim. And guess what? His name is Jesus. So Paul here is saying, listen, I'm guilty. I have hope. Based upon the resurrection, Jesus rose from the dead, so I'm going to raise, be raised from the dead. It'll be a resurrection of the just. I'll be with Jesus forever. So here's the question. Do you live with a hope that is appealing to the hopeless. Because let me tell you this, and you know this. Hopelessness is pervading our world. And you got people all around you, in your family, in your workplace, in your community. And listen, they are hopeless. And they are wringing their hands about elections and terrorism and natural disasters. And they are worked up and they are worried. And they have no hope in their life. They have no peace. They, they have no security. And here you are, living right beside them. And you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you have an unshakable hope. Can they see that hope in your life? Are you wringing your hands in despair and agony and angst? Or do you have a hope that Jesus is still on his throne? And one day Jesus Christ will split the eastern sky and he will come back for you and your body will be raised and your body and soul will be reunited and you will go to heaven forever and nothing and no one can change that fact. If you Listen, if we really believe in a resurrected Jesus, and if we really believe in a resurrection of our bodies to heaven as born-again believers, we should have and live and exemplify unshakable hope. So are you guilty of living with unshakable hope? Do, do hopeless people look at your life and say, I want some of that. I don't know what's going on with them. But they're not filled with angst. They're, they're not wringing their hands. There's a, there's a settled belief in their life that cannot shake them to their core. I want some of that because I'm tired of living with hopelessness. Which leads me to the last question. Are you guilty of wanting others to be saved? Are you guilty of wanting others to be saved? what Paul says in verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. After several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say that what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So Paul's saying, here's what I'm guilty of. I did point them to Jesus. I did talk about... The resurrection that was sealed by the resurrection of Christ and anticipated in my life. And then it says, but Felix, this governor, 
having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He wanted some more information from the leader of the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem. He gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. I have stood right there in Caesarea, right there where they believe Paul was put in prison in Herod's palace. Incredible. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul does? Every opportunity, he takes advantage of it. He takes advantage of every opportunity to speak of his faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse 25, he shares truth about the human condition in eternity. Look in verse 25. As he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And so Paul is talking to him about truth. God is righteous, Felix. You're not. I'm not. Felix, look at your life. You are living, exhibiting a lack of self-control, living according to the dictates of your sin nature. And Felix, you need to understand, there's a judgment coming where you'll be judged for your lack of self-control. You'll be judged for your, for your fallenness, your lack of righteousness. He's telling him the truth about the human condition. The ESV Study Bible says this, Paul did not flatter this man who had the power of life and death over him, but proclaimed the gospel boldly and clearly. Paul's not scared. Paul desires that this wicked politician be saved. And he shares truth with him. Hey, Felix, there's some really good news, but you need to understand the bad news first. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, and there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. But we need to understand that when we take advantage of the opportunities God puts before us, not every person will embrace Jesus. Look what happens in verse 25. Felix was alarmed. He was convicted by this preaching of Paul. He sends him away. At the same time, verse 26, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he's saying, you know, this guy Paul seems pretty important. Maybe his followers will take up an offering and come and bail him out. And I'll get more money. So he's, he's alarmed by what Paul's saying, but not enough to repent of his sin. He's still corrupt. This says, He sent for him often and conversed with him over this time period. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and designed to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. So for two years, he's talking to Paul intermittently, but there's no evidence that Felix ever gives his life to Jesus. We need to understand that not every person will embrace Jesus when we share Jesus. J.M. Boy says this, The real tragedy of his life, Felix's life, was not that he postponed making a judgment about Paul in regard to the Sanhedrin's accusations, but that he postponed the far more serious matter of making a decision concerning Jesus Christ. And let me just parenthetically say right here, could it be that you are here this morning and you've heard the message of Jesus and the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart and stirred your heart and made you restless, but you've just been postponing Jesus. You've been just pushing it off for another day, another time, another week. Listen to me. We are not guaranteed another blink of our eye. We're not guaranteed another beat of our heart. Today is the day of salvation. 
But notice here, when Paul has an opportunity before a governor, what does he do? He shares his faith in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. What does your track record of witnessing say about your concern for the lost? I had to struggle with this question this past week in my study. What did your track record of witnessing say about your concern for the lost? If you were in, in a courtroom and a prosecuting attorney said, this person wants other people to be saved too. And someone said, well, where's the evidence for that? Would they find any? Are you guilty of wanting others to be saved? And so the question is, are you guilty? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Here's the point. You ready? There should be overwhelming, irrefutable evidence of our commitment to Christ. There should be overwhelming, irrefutable evidence of our commitment to Christ. You know what I desire for you? I desire that on the day when your friends and family gather for your funeral, no one is wondering where you are. Because your Christian commitment was on display by the grace of God for all to see. No one's wondering if mom or dad or grandma or grandpa is in heaven. They, they know it. They saw the fruit in your life, the fruit of your relationship with Jesus. And may a lost and dying world see Jesus in us. If we are saved and we are surrendered to Christ, there will be evidence of that in our lives. We can stand before watching the world and say, yeah, we're guilty. We're guilty of loving Jesus Christ.